This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. This is connected to We have each spoken. Now you should say, good man, what is a bodhisattva's method of entry into non-duality? Vimalakirti was silent. So part of me um, just wants to remain silent in retreat. And yet I'm given this um, honor and this opportunity to say a few things. Um, so I will. <laughs> so I know this practice period, we've been talking a lot about refuge, um, taking refuge, most especially in the three treasures of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. But today I'd like to talk a little bit about maybe the most direct method of doing this, which is just taking refuge in this very moment. Uh, taking refuge in this very body and mind. Taking refuge in the, the fullness of our experience. So in religious life, we have, you know, forms and structures to, to kind of teach us how to um, enact religious life, how to remind us to be present. You know, chanting uh, the three refuges during retreat and also, you know, at the end of the day during the pandemic, all of our services have just been the, the three refuges in Bali. And so I think everybody probably here knows this, but, you know, the chant that we do in the evening, Budam Saranam Gachami, you know, the translation of that is just, I go to the Buddha for refuge is one translation. I go to the Buddha for refuge. I go to Dharma for refuge. I go to Sangha for refuge. And then the second verse just says, for the second time, Dutyampi. I go to the Buddha for refuge. But it wasn't, I think, until I started doing um, all day sittings, you know, early in practice at the Chapel Hill Zen Center, that I realized that um, these, this particular chant, um, although we didn't do the Pali version at the time, is the ending of the monastic day. And it's also this way at Tassajara, where we do do the, the Pali version. And in Chapel Hill, at the end of the day, we would all um, stand behind our bowing mats or our cushions and, and bow and do three bows. And then we would chant, I take refuge in Buddha, 
take refuge in Dharma, take refuge in Sangha. I take refuge in Buddha as the perfect teacher. I take refuge in Dharma as the perfect teaching. I take refuge in Sangha as the perfect life. Now I have completely taken refuge in Buddha. Now I have completely taken refuge in Dharma. Now I have completely taken refuge in Sangha. So in a retreat in Chapel Hill, these were the last words that we say every day. You know? um, and I think especially with the melody of the Pali version, there's a way that it kind of echoes in our consciousness as we return to our room and lay down and go to bed. And I think this is intentional you know, in the forms of religious life. There's a an explicit importance in these three treasures as you know at the very core of Soto Zen Buddhist life because they are the last words of the day because we sort of take them with us into our other forms of consciousness into sleep into dreaming. So Steve Stuckey, the uh, former um, central abbot of San Francisco Zen Center, when he uh, when I lived at Tassajara, he uh, often taught or encouraged, especially during sessions, to take a moment. You know, you're sitting um, many hours all day. And the final bell rings and there's some sense of maybe relief, like uh, I'm physically exhausted. I just want to go home and lay down. And his encouragement was to return to your room or your cabin and to sit on your bed and sit some more sasen. And I think what he was pointing to, and he would explicitly say that, um, this transition between our waking conscious life and whatever happens when we when we go to sleep it's an important pivot in our life um, and to bring our conscious practice attention to those kinds of pivots those kinds of um, liminal moments moments in between So I, I also do recommend to to folks um, that have a home altar, you know, to um, consider, you know, lighting and offering incense just before bed, or um, if you don't have incense or an altar, to do floor bows just before bed. And there's also the same practice for waking up in the morning that the first conscious thoughts of the day can be about kind of realigning with practice or reminding ourselves that um, you know, practice is something that can live through us throughout the day. Probably to our benefit, you know? <laughs> being grounded and present 
has a brings an enjoyment, you know, a level of satisfaction to our to our life and each moment. But I think it also benefits others that we are more open and aware to the needs of those around us. So there's lots of forms, lots of reminders in practice. But in a way, those are just kind of pointers. I think what I would like to encourage through this talk is that ultimately um, taking refuge happens in every moment. And you know, practice is called practice for a reason. You know, we can practice that. Um, and, and, and the forms of, of Zen practice remind us to practice that. But what does it mean to take refuge in the present moment? What does it mean to take refuge in this body and mind as It's my kind of like um, pinhole to everything, you know, the experience that I have in this particular uh, thing <laughs> is my perspective on everything and is a part of everything. So how to, how to study just this as the connection to everything. And I think, you know, the other question that comes up in practice is like, what stops us from finding refuge in the present moment? Finding refuge in exactly where we are. So there's lots of things that um, hinder us in that. And I think on a very like basic level, uh, there's a question that I find, um, and I think maybe others find as well, of like, is it okay? You know, is it okay to open to the experience that I'm having? You know, is it safe here? And I think on a very, this is kind of like a low level, like instinctual level, a lot of times we decide that it's not, you know, that we will try to manufacture ways to create safety for ourselves. And that will sort of tune down the, the vibrancy of the present moment so that it feels more palatable and more tangible or acceptable. And so I think for me personally, like the, the entrance um, that opened for me into refuge uh, was Sazen, was being taught how to um, sit Sazen, you know, how to take a, a, a form or a posture with this body and this mind. And because I did not feel a sense of safety about my own experience, um, it kind of helped that there was a uh, an encouragement to face 
a blank wall. Um, that that made it feel just a little bit safer, maybe. And it actually helped me that the formality of Zen meant that, um, you know, especially during a retreat, that people weren't coming up and engaging me socially or, you know, um, making eye contact where I felt like I had to perform how I had to sort of appear friendly or smiling or something you know that there was a sort of expectation and that in the form of you know trying to stay with our own energy and not make eye contact in a in a retreat environment uh, again allowed this sense of it's okay it's okay to uh, open to the experience of, of this moment. And just the, the structure of Zazen posture, you know, you know, we're seated. So um, it's not like we're standing all day. There's a, there's a kind of an element of relaxation or rest because we're sitting down. Um, and somehow our legs, you know, if we sit cross-legged, our legs overlapping or intertwining kind of give some support or, or kind of balance for the body and stability. And then to just be encouraged to, you know, open um, our, our kind of heart center. You know, I think a lot of times what we're protecting when we feel it's not safe or not okay to, to arrive in this moment, in a felt sense, kind of resides here in our uh, living, beating heart. So from this balance or stability of uh, the posture, you know, an encouragement to try and, and open that part of our body. Um, in a way, that's a sort of a step into the present moment. It's sort of saying, I, I think it's okay. You don't need to completely protect. Or I'm going to try it. You know? And I think when we do... Um, stick our toe in, we get kind of um, some confirmation that there's actually nourishment in the present moment for us, you know, for our, our limited life. And part of that nourishment is uh, connection, interconnection being a part of this one one body of existence. When I'm when I'm afraid or when I'm not sure that it's okay to um, to be in this moment and I find ways to protect even physiologically like uh, I struggled for a long time with a certain pain in a certain um, 
area of my own shoulder that after many years of sitting occurred to me was a kind of physical defense mechanism you know that I, I i struggled to find a kind of balanced posture because part of me was trying to protect you know some heart center or core of my own body physically you know, that's how embodied the, the the sense of fear or not okayness was or can be but when we you know take that step and sort of open physically in the posture of zazen maybe there's some kind of indescribable way that we feel more a part of everything i think in protecting we're also isolating in protecting my life and my body and I'm, I'm sort of clarifying that it's separate or different from other places or bodies but when we kind of open to being okay as an experiment you know before we actually feel the present moment is okay we test it And that's the sense of, to me, taking refuge. You know, taking refuge. It's sort of like doing something to find refuge, which is different to me than maybe dwelling in refuge. In some, you know, wider sense, dwelling in refuge is the way things already are. Everything's dwelling in refuge. But as my independent, isolated, kind of fearful self, I actually have to like take refuge. I have to like test what it would be like to dwell in refuge. You know, we and we we have these wonderful teachings and teachers and forms and a whole history who support us in this work. Um, but I think it's sometimes important to remind ourselves that it's not, it's not, you know, um, finding refuge, being okay in the present moment isn't, um, somehow the, um, isn't owned by religion or isn't owned by Soto's and Buddhism. These are somehow deeper truths than even our kind of philosophies and ways of describing them. So I, I think um, some of you may know this this story, and I, I thought maybe I would share it again today, um, just as an example of one experience of kind of learning how to take refuge or being taught. Um, during Choro's talk yesterday, she mentioned, um, you know, living and being lived for the benefit of everything, basically. And for some reason in her talk, the, the words being lived uh, kind of hit me again. You know? So the living is like the thing we're doing, like living for the benefit of all being or living for... Um, 
enlightenment, basically. But uh, the first part is us taking refuge, us sort of trying to meet that thing, meet that reality. But being lived is how reality is already kind of has us in 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 its sort of um, in its arms of carrying everything. Being lived is also how we are kind of offered specific experiences um, that open us in ways that we need. That we are somehow being taught by life, by the experiences of our life, the lessons that we need to open to just this. So the experience that I'm thinking of now particularly is, you know, when I was um, just out of high school, or I was actually taking a year off from college, um, and I was uh, traveling abroad, and, and um, after, you know, three or four months of traveling, I came to uh, stay at a uh, a home of a family in Finland, um, a kind of remote lakes region, um, well north of Helsinki. And um, this family was a farming family. Uh, they had fields, beautiful kind of rolling fields of barley and wheat. Um, it was an idyllic place. But within a few um, days of being there, I started to develop this um, intense pain in one of my uh, calves in my leg. Um, and basically ended up in the hospital with a uh, deep vein thrombosis with a blood clot in my leg. And um, by the time I arrived at the hospital, I, I was sort of in and out of consciousness or in a different state of consciousness because of the pain. Um, so even my memories of it kind of have a otherworldly um, underwater kind of feeling, but um, practically what happened was that blood clot uh, that was in the leg broke, part of it broke off and traveled to the lung. And so that I had a, a pulmonary embolism which was the most painful thing that I've had the good fortune of experiencing in this lifetime. Um, and uh, I still don't quite understand it, but there's not a, there wasn't at the time a very strong incentive in uh, Finnish medicine to give painkillers. Um, I think I was offered like an extra dose um, Tylenol, like once a day or something. Um, And so I lived for a number of days in excruciating pain. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming at least some of you have had these kinds of experiences in your own life. Um, and I've had other experiences, but they don't necessarily all um, have this ability to turn us or to uh, open us or the lessons that life is trying to teach us don't always kind of register or land, but for whatever reason, 
in that excruciating pain and without any relief from that pain, um, my body kind of discovered some way of breathing that uh, gave me relief in um, profound ways from that moment-to-moment painful experience. And when I left the hospital after 10 or 11 days, um, I had this profound sense of well-being that, um, you know, I almost feel wistful about in kind of rec- recalling. Um, it was a very, like, grounded certainty that... Um, it is, it's all okay. Like, I'm okay. And sort of more broadly, life is okay. Um, it doesn't mean it's fun or pleasant or exactly what we want all the time, but it is deeply, fundamentally okay. Um, and I knew that in some kind of every pore of my body. For a moment, you know, these things don't last. Um, but I wonder sometimes, you know, what caused that feeling, that sense of profound well-being? You know, was it just that uh, I was no longer in the pain that I had been in? Or did it have something to do with um, this process of being taught how to breathe? And I think in the breathing is the acceptance of, like, there's a there's a great pain here that um, I can't change, and I have like there's an acceptance in kind of breathing with it that um, you know took the edge off. So sometimes I wonder if that sense of well-being had something to do with being taught, you know, being lived by the universe in some kind of way that I that I found this kind of breathing ability to integrate my experience. So anyway, I just share that to say, you know, we have forms and we have wonderful teachings, but also life is just happening all the time. Um, And... um, you know, the wonderful thing about the teachings and the forms and the formality of practice is that they give us time to kind of soak in and integrate and more deeply um, understand. Um, and I mean understand in a, in a kind of physiological way, not an intellectual way, but understand or be okay being in the present moment. But that, you know, again, isn't something that necessarily comes from Buddhism or even from the Buddha. Um, It's just life. So I wanted to share just um, another passage from uh, Zen master uh, Hong Zhe, because this is just a wonderful book about kind of poetic representations of non-duality. It's called, it's called Cultivating the Empty Field. It's a translation by Tygen Van Leyden. Um, 
but Hong Zhu just has this like prolific poetry of non-duality that I uh, I find encouraging. It's definitely encouraging. So he's this this poem or this little um, passage is called "The Misunderstanding of Many Lifetimes." Emptiness is without characteristics. Illumination has no emotional afflictions. With piercing, quietly profound radiance, it mysteriously illuminates all disgrace. Thus one can know oneself. Thus the self is completed. We all have the clear, wondrously bright field from the beginning. Many lifetimes of misunderstanding come only from distrust, hindrance, and screens of confusion that we create in a scenario of isolation. With boundless wisdom, journey beyond this, forgetting accomplishments. Straightforwardly abandon strat stratagems and take on responsibility. Having turned yourself around, accept your situation. If you set foot on the path, spiritual energy will marvelously transport you. Contact phenomena with total sincerity, not a single atom of dust outside yourself. So are there any questions or thoughts that folks want to share? Yeah, Karen. I'm just wondering, I think because in the <clears throat> um, class with the practice period, I forget which, um, we're <laughs> we've been doing way seeking mind talks. Mm -hmm. And I just wondered um, if that if that part of your life that experience was that where did that kind of fall in your way seeking mind journey? Yeah. 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 Thank you. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, um, I was actually struggling, um, to, to kind of find what I wanted to talk about today. Um, and I, I mentioned that to Mako and she actually said, mentioned something about, well, why don't you do some sort of way seeking mind talk? So I think that that story did come from that same place of, um, and it, it, it has been part of my way-seeking mind talks in the past. And in terms of my you know, way-seeking mind experience of my own life, um, it was definitely a turning point. And it was before I, um, I entered any kind of religious life or I didn't, you know, I didn't have any practice per se at the time. You know, I was about 19, I think. Um, so this was years before I kind of wandered into a Zen center and, and received Zazen instruction. And, um, but I can't help but think that had something to do with me ending up there. Um, in the ways again, that we're being lived, you know, there's some, there's some agency to my life. There's some choices that I make, um, 
And then there's a lot of ways that life is just kind of like pulling me along. I definitely feel that and sense that. And, and I think increasingly through practice, you learn to trust that. That, you know, it might not take such a profound, um, extreme example to, to turn me, you know, maybe now than it did then, you know, like because I practice, because I'm, uh, you know, some on a good day, more, more um, willing to accept what life is trying to give me or show me or, um, and I, and I realize I sound kind of, I don't know, like woo or something in talking about life teaching me lessons, you know, but this is, we could call this Buddha nature as well, uh, or just kind of flowing in the Tao. But yeah, in terms of my way-seeking mind journey, it, this was a, a formative step. Yeah, um, and I think you know, often when I when I've told this story in way-seeking mind contexts. Um, and I do again want to mention, I often mention that I did at the time and continue to feel deeply grateful for this extreme experience, you know, um, that being in such incredible pain saved me or something, you know, opened up my life. And you know, that, that sounds odd, you know, to say I'm grateful for, for intense pain. And I also want to say, you know, I've had intensely painful experiences that I didn't kind of, that didn't necessarily open me or that I didn't learn a lot from. And I don't, I don't want people to feel like, you know, they should put themselves in painful positions to learn lessons or something, or that if in a painful situation, we just recoil or we just receive that that's somehow, you know, that we failed or something, you know, I think there's, there's an element of timing too, like uh, the, the, the mother chick pecking from the outside of the shell and the, the baby pecking from the inside of the shell. Um, it kind of takes both of them to open the shell. So, yeah, I, I, I don't think that we should feel like failures when we fail to learn the lesson that life might be trying to teach us. But there are um, enough examples in my life of, of having um, situations turn and soften and deep in my experience of, of life that I am that I am grateful. And I try and remember that when things get difficult. <laughs> uh, even now. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I was really struck by the breathing part of it too. I feel like that mm -hmm. I feel like that really is powerful. Mm -hmm. Often that you were you know, you were driven to learn this breathing practice. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then, you know, I was a kid, I didn't know, but then of course, as an adult, I come to learn that, 
there's, you know, myriad traditions that have studied the breath and, you know, myriad ways of describing certain breath practices. And, um, and I think what I'm trying to express in a way is to not get lost in the teachings, you know, as something separate from our life. Like if I had just read about breath practices and maybe, you know, tried them, it would be a different, um, kind of learning than being in such an extreme circumstance that some natural way of breathing arrived in this body and mind, you know, um, it was a good lesson in, I don't know, naturalness or something and the natural okayness of life that, you know, Buddhist teaching and philosophy can help us kind of understand and navigate and integrate but it's not, it doesn't come from Buddhist teaching in life necessarily. It's broader than that. So, Tim, this is Pat. Yeah, Pat. You can't see me, I don't think, because I'm way over here to the side. But... I can hear you, though. Oh, good, good. I just wanted to thank you for a, a wonderful talk. It feels so complete. I, I don't really have a question, but what struck me most was talking about taking refuge in the in this moment and um, so my moments out here in the yard are filled with a lot of dead brown leaves and um, <laughs> it's just been uh, uh, great to commune, commune with these, all these dead leaves um, so I don't really have a question but I just um, really appreciate your time well, thank you so much, Pat. Uh, I also don't know that I have a question, but I might find one here. I, I think what struck me most was when you were talking about the pain in your shoulder interfering or, or, or inhibiting with the sitting because it was uh, sort of an instinctive searching for, or it was, it was a taking protection. And I think partly because I, don't, I get the classes and the practice period gatherings kind of blur for me a little. So I don't know which it came up in, but, but there was a discussion of, of what we were calling false refuge. You know, the, 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 things, the things that we take refuge in that really aren't wholesome or skilled or helpful for us in a long sense. And to me, what you were touching on there is, is a lot like well, you'd mentioned, I think, wholeheartedness, like like really showing up, but also vulnerability. And how curious it is that in in the moment, sometimes what seems like refuge in the sense of safety is ultimately not serving us. And the, and the more true or authentic or, or wholesome refuge may appear to be the thing that's scary and difficult and painful. Mm -hmm. so I, I, I don't know if, if, you, if you have more to say about that. I guess that would be my question is if there's more to say about that. But it, it rings true for me. And yet uh, I, I think it's, it's really where a lot of the wrestling of practice lies is this thing that I'm wanting to, like, am I grasping for protection versus opening myself up to something larger? 
Yeah, yeah, good question. Um, and I think you you kind of said it more succinctly in a way than, than I did. Um, so I appreciate your, your comment. Um, you know, practice is practice, you know, um, and human beings are human beings and we need practice. <laughs> and to me, that means, um, you know, uh, choosing the wrong refuge, choosing the wrong coping mechanism um, is is part of the is part of the journey is part of human life um it is kind of the path we walk and and i think um the deepening of our practice is how we receive the lessons we learn as we make mistakes um, so i think you know in terms of like dogen's uh encouragement to study the buddha way is to study the self you know, one of those studies of the self is, is um, you know, a non-judgmental and kind of honest reckoning with ourselves. Like, where do I go for refuge? And how is that working out for me? <laughs> and I think that is the process of practice. But there does seem to be kind of different levels of safety if we're looking for safety. And I think we are, in a way, as human beings. You know, the deepest level of safety is this non-dual, uh, you know, awareness of oneness with everything, of interconnectivity with everything. And that is... Um, you know, sort of the, you just call it the, like the matrix of, or the womb of the Tathagatagarbha. You know, it's like we, uh, we already exist in this place where we can't go anywhere else. If we're totally connected and totally a part of everything, uh, what are we afraid of? You know, where could we go? What could happen to us? That's a really deep sense of safety. But it's also not something we all, you know, part of the human condition is that we don't often feel that connection to um, everything. We don't feel our interconnection to all beings. Um, and that's when we seek other refuges. <laughs> um, and again, I think we just study how that goes, you know, what are, what are, what are the effects on me and other beings when I make that choice to seek solace in chocolate cake or whatever. And I think the honest, you know, the honest um, self-assessment involves like acknowledging the benefits like, oh, okay, there's a momentary, um, feeling of well-being like there's a momentary feeling of euphoria of maybe you know that's similar to connection um i think that's the kind of honest study of the self uh too but i think what um ultimately most you know the teachers that i've 
learned from keep pointing me to all of these other refuges are limited, you know, to find the limits of that refuge. Um, something might work, like a coping mechanism might work. It might help us survive some certain experience, but then we keep coming back to it in other experiences. Is it still working for us? You know, can we notice that its, it's lifespan has run out? And then can we seek for something that maybe doesn't have such limitations? And I think for people in, in practice or living out the Buddha's way, you know, that deeper uh, level of safety involves refuge in the three treasures. So, yeah, thank you, Bruce. Yes, Choro. Thank you, Tim. Um, in class this week, we read a couple of teachings by uh, teachers in the Tibetan tradition, Pema Chodron and, and Trungpa. Um, and one thing that, uh, one quote that stood out for me, and we talked about some, was that uh, Trungpa says being something like being a refugee, mm-hmm. <laughs> his way of talking about going for refuge. Being a refugee is, I think it's giving up a, the attachment to security. Mm-hmm. Maybe basic security. I'm not sure exactly what he meant by basic security. Mm-hmm. But he emphasized groundlessness mm-hmm. and, and you know, not being, there, there is no kind of safety that one can mm-hmm. abide in or uh, trust to just remain static and, you know, always there. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if you have any comment about that in light of what you're, what you're saying. I, I hear echoes of it in the way you're talking about refuge, you know, kind of giving up the things that don't work uh, or, or seeing, you know, the uns- maybe the unskillfulness of eating an entire chocolate cake. Um, I think I did that with a friend of mine in sixth grade. We, ma- we went home, made wow. a chocolate cake and ate the entire thing. Uh, <laughs> suffered some ill effects um, yeah but uh chocolate cakes aside do you do you have any any thoughts yes yes no i um i think that's a helpful distinction because i i am saying in a way that there is ultimate safety but that ultimate safety is the life of buddha nature you know it's not my personal life um and there is no ultimate safety for my personal life. Um, and I do agree that groundlessness and a kind of acceptance or acknowledgement, at least, of the groundlessness of our lives as individual beings is, is a, you know, a really important part of practice. Um, so I would not, you know, <laughs> deign to disagree with the Dalai Lama. Um, <laughs> But I think what I'm saying is like, um, in the sense that we are non-dual beings and we're already completely connected to everything and there's nowhere to go, there's nowhere way for me to lose that, um, even in death, even in pain, um, that's the kind of, the sort of level of safety, if you could call it that, that I'm sort of referring to. 
wanted to comment since you mentioned Buddha nature mm-hmm. that I think it's Dogen who somewhere says Buddha nature is impermanence. Mm-hmm. And can we be at home in impermanence? You know that can we embrace that? Yeah. Can we find okayness in groundlessness? You know? It doesn't mean it's pleasant. It might be deeply painful, but there's a certain okayness with it. Uh, that's accessible through practice and even accessible sometimes outside of practice, you know, even if we don't know it's happening to us. Thank you. Okay. Well, why don't we um, end here? And I think uh, we'll probably start some Kenyan. Thank you all for, for being here and, and for being so kind with your attention.